1: And so it represents that grimy civil war nature that continues after the large armies have moved on into other areas.
0: That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor Travis Copeland talking about the kidnapping of North Carolina Governor Thomas Burke. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer and this is Dispatches. This episode is brought to you by Discover Concord, the town where our American history began. Plan to visit and explore historic Concord, Massachusetts. For more information, visit discoverconcordma.com. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today, our guest is Journal of the American Revolution contributor, Travis Copeland, talking about the kidnapping of the governor of North Carolina, Thomas Burke. The revolution is surprisingly nasty business. Hopefully, everyone has gathered that by now after two years of this show. But in the American South, the war was really, truly, at its worst, a partisan war. Sneak attacks, ambushes, economic warfare were the norm. And kidnapping, especially of high-profile figures, was also a part of that overall insurgent war strategy, really employed by both sides. Travis Copeland's articles on North Carolina have been a wonderful contribution to the Journal of the American Revolution, and this one is no different. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Travis Copeland. Travis Copeland, thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me again.
0: Tell us about your background.
1: So I'm a North Carolina native, and I am currently a middle school and high school teacher. And, you know, growing up in North Carolina, there's just history all over the place, whether it's just kind of an older house or something historic. And so I really uh, I have a love for North Carolina and North Carolina history in general. I think it's a great state having mountains and coast. Um, I also really enjoy the outdoors, uh, like gardening and walking and just spending time outside, and I'm also currently uh, in graduate school with a, with a particular interest in early American history, probably most predominantly early Southern history, though I, I, it, the West has been intriguing me recently, but um, I'm a graduate student taking up most of my, uh, my free
0: time at the moment. What first drew your interest into this topic?
1: So I think one of the things that I constantly am doing is keeping track of just tidbits that I run across. Both as a graduate student and as someone who loves early American history, I'm reading, listening to books, reading primary source, secondary source materials, and I'll come across footnotes, comments, uh, quotes that are integrated that I find intriguing, and I make notes of all of them. And one of the things that I think I encountered, I've written a little bit for the journal on stuff earlier on in the 1780s, 80 and 81, probably the big years for North Carolina and the Revolution, and I started to take some interest in the revolution in – we kind of go from Guilford Courthouse to Yorktown, and the years of 72, 73 are, especially in a survey course, jumped over some. And so I just started taking some interest and in poking around. And there's some things on Governor Burke and his capture just you know, thrown out on the internet in, in really quick snapshots. And I started looking around, not just at that, but plenty of other things that I'll uh, that I could mention, but – I started looking into that and just thought, you know, David Fanning was particularly interesting and just started looking for source material to see if there was anything that really could put together a, a larger narrative than what was maybe available. Um, it, you know, it, it's in a few books here and there occasionally, but I wanted to put something together that gave a really accessible, in its length, but also thorough presentation of the events. But also, we can maybe get on touch on this at some point to highlight the impact of the revolution after Yorktown. Yorktown, um, and to see the ways that the revolution continued all the way up until the
0: Treaty of uh, Paris. Tell us about the early life of Burke. So Burke was not born in the
1: colonies. Uh, He was born in Dublin, Ireland in 1774. So he's going to immigrate to the colonies from Ireland. He moves in the... 59, 60, 61, somewhere in their uh, period of time, kind of in the middle of the French and Indian War. Um, And he moves to the Virginia Tidewater region, a very prominent Southern position. Uh, There's a lot of activity going on in that Tidewater region of kind of the Northern part of the Southern colonies. And he comes and he practices law. He gets, uh, becomes a lawyer and he gets married and grows in sentiment for the Patriot cause from the end of the French and Indian war. Uh, he wrote a lot against the stamp act and continued to write. He wrote uh, for magazine or um, newspapers, as well as he wrote some poetry that was very political in nature. And he starts to uh, maybe you could say a bit kind of leave behind his, his Ireland roots um, and really takes on the identity of a, a born colonist. He is as fervent, fervent as anyone else at the time. And then, uh, as that continues to grow, he transitions in 1772. He moves to Hillsborough, North Carolina, which is central North Carolina, halfway between uh, the coast and the mountains, or so. Uh, he's a gentry because he's studying law. He's uh, he's well-to-do. He's he's intelligent, and that's that's noticeable. And he is elected to the North Carolina Provincial Congress several times. He serves in both of, as a lawyer and as a member of the Provincial Congress, he's very involved in the higher things of state. And that leads to him being a North Carolina representative to the Continental Congress from 1777 to 1781. And so that's where he really kind of begins to become a noticeable, even amongst the North Carolina officials, he's noticeable because that's a very high uh, esteemed thing amongst the patriot North Carolina Patriot leaders. Um, and But then after... 1776, and the Constitution is included in North Carolina, they start to develop a, a patriot government. Burke will, be, um, will become the third governor, kind of coming off of some of that providence, serving as a provincial, and then uh, serving in the, the Continental Congress. But it's uh, interesting to find that he's, uh, he's Irish-born and takes on such strong sentiments as the revolution develops and takes on the real identity of, of fellow patriots in the southern colonies.
0: How did he become governor? Yeah, so he's he's elected
1: over and against the Samuel Johnson, who who also serves as governor and and has a probably a more prominent career. They both, at the time of the election, are uh, have been colonial uh, congress delegates. They're ardently opposed to the British. They're lawyers, and I think it's important to note too. Uh, he wins out over Johnson, but. The chief executive at the time, the the governorship is is not as strong. It's it, it, it's weak even into the 20th century in North Carolina, when it's given veto power, and so it's a one year term. So there's a bit of a, and it's chosen by the general assembly. So there's a bit of a kind of rotation. Someone, a figurehead of sorts. It's there's prominence there, and particularly him serving in Continental Congress really bolsters uh, his perspective amongst those around him. Um, But I think it's maybe a bit hard to pin down exactly the very, very, very specific cause that he wins out over Johnson. Johnson will uh, become governor later on in the 1780s as the Constitution is being ratified. But uh, Burke maybe could have had something to do with just a slight political affiliation. Um, But he and Johnson are both very prominent, very well thought of. Uh, men. And at this time, Burke comes to the governorship for that year, possibly the consideration that Johnston would, uh, would come following. But, you know, not running and not putting themselves forward. They're both just very willing to, uh, to accept those uh, positions as they come to them to serve as, as governor. But uh, Burke was elected governor on July in July of 1781 uh, in Raleigh. So there's also an uh, important note, Johnston was in Wilmington and Burke lived in Hillsboro. So Burke's proximity to the assembly at the time was much closer. So his, his presence was probably felt more notably, and he was able to uh, maybe have a bit more of a voice, uh, be a little more present, which I think certainly probably played a part in his being elected
0: to that position in 1781. What was North Carolina like during the war? You say it was grimy. Why do you say that?
1: I really love that term, grimy. I think that it is really representative. And, and it probably it could be used of of the war in the North as well. But I think it particularly fits the Southern colonies. It's, it's called, the revolution in the Southern colonies is called the first civil war. There, is, there are large British presence and, and co- continental presence at different points. But for the most part, from beginning to end, a lot of the conflict that goes on there and and the fighting in favor of the British or in favor of the colonists is done by local militias. It's done by raising the set troops to um, take back some supplies or interrupt the British or spy networks are put together. And so it's very grimy. It's very there's a noticeable variance from Wilmington to Hillsboro to Salem. There's a, a change kind of as you move through Who is controlling what? Who's involved? The towns are extremely invested in what's going on. And the Civil War, in in every sense, the neighbor-against-neighbor conflict, creates this very grimy kind of uh, fluid nature to the war, where the conflict continues before and after large armies such as Cornwallis and Green move through. And they don't seem to be deterred by anything. There's constant conflict in favor of the side, whether they're patriots or loyalist. And this is true before and after. And I think uh, the grimy Burke's capture represents some of this griminess because even into 1782, he's being held as a prisoner. And the, the way that he's captured, which we will talk about, I'm um, sure, is uh, noticeably uh, unique to that situation. It's it's a very neighbor against neighbor uh, in your backyard. I'm fighting for the British, you're fighting for the Patriot cause. And so that griminess represents that kind of grit that was run through and it's not quite as organized as large continental armies and large uh, British armies fighting face to face. Though you'll get that at Guilford Courthouse and you'll get that at Cowpens in South Carolina, but it's not necessarily quite as regular as uh, Washington's presence in the North is. But the grimy I think is particularly helpful for kind of envisioning the way people would have felt about the tone and the environment of the war in those Southern colonies and, and would have been true of Burke and, and the constituents in 1781 and 1782. Could you talk about Burke's capture? So I think the most important free precursor note is uh, who captures him. So let's, let's make, mention David Fanning for a minute. David Fanning is a loyalist who's sworn in by the British as a, a loyalist officer. Um, And he's brought in and he's very notorious in South North Carolina history and the revolution. There's even a kind of historic site to his actions. He is – he's got kind of a vicious tone to him, everything that he does. It's quick. It's uh, a bit vindictive in nature. He's very direct and he's very aggressive in his actions. And so Burke's capture begins with Fanning. Fanning is this Loyalist officer, and he sends out a call to those around him. He stations at Cox Mill in East North, or west North Carolina, kind of near Ashboro and the Hall River today. And he sends out a call for uh, militia to come and join him, that they would, be, they, would, they would not have their property plundered, they would not be considered opposed to the crown. And he does draw in a good number of men. He ends up with about a 700 man army or so, and he's stationed there and opposite him is Patriot general, John Butler and Robert Mabin. And they're both located kind of near Hillsborough a little bit farther on, on the other side of the hall river, which runs kind of down the middle of North Carolina. And Burke is in Hillsborough at the time Burke and much of the legislature, the officers, North Carolina has kind of several different places that are functioning as very important. Wilmington being one, New Bern, Hillsborough, the Raleigh area, and Burke is located at Hillsborough. And Fanning had arranged with Major James Henry Craig, who was overseeing the British forces after the capture of Wilmington. And Craig had uh, spoken with Fanning about um, deciding to capture Burke. Instead of possibly taking on General Butler or maven, and so they've agreed the British Commander Craig and the loyalist David Fanning have agreed to capture Burke, so they have done that for um, you know a number of reasons that we can we can touch on, but they march into town Fanning particularly marches into town with his men on the morning sunday morning, September thirteenth at seven a m which catches everyone. Off guard, and they capture, and he notes a uh, number of officials, General Assembly, officers, the continental line, and Burke. And they are quick to get away from General Butler and Colonel Mabin. And so they capture Burke and immediately are on the march back to Cox Mill, moving a bit more directly south uh, than than west. And they take they've captured a number of the legislature, officers, and generals, and so it's a it's a bit surprised. There is a bit of a skirmish as they're getting into town, but they blow that off very quickly and are able to escape and evade Butler and Maven's attempts to get in front of them, which it seems as they're moving with Fanning attempting to capture Burke and Butler and Maven that there's a bit of uh, confusion because Butler is ready to fight Fanning and Fanning has definitely got his eye on evading the conflict and moving on to capture Burke as he agreed with Major Craig, the British
0: commander. What were the goals of the group that kidnapped him?
1: Yeah, we certainly uh, we don't have maybe a very explicit British cause. We're going to do this, and the result will be this. But we certainly can do some things, one from some conflict between Craig and Burke, And also just in kind of how the British thought about the war at large. The British, uh, you can see this in General Howe capturing Philadelphia, that there was some thinking of, you know, if we move into the capital area or the legislature, the main body, then maybe they'll capitulate or it will really uh, diminish their morale and affect the way that they're fighting this conflict. But the revolution, I think it represents the revolutionary nature of North Carolina that despite the capture of Burke, despite the fact that the legislature and some of the officer's officials, it doesn't change General Butler's ambition to take on fanning and conflict. It doesn't change the revolutionary nature of the colony of North Carolina at all. They continue to fight as viciously and as aggressively as they have been. But I think maybe you could speculate a bit. I know that's a bit of a a reach or an assumption that the, the European style thinking of the British and the European style war is if we can capture the the capital, or we can capture the, a major center like that and hold it, it will be uh, demoralizing. And it seems that the North Carolina revolutionary, that the state is so revolutionary that they just walk right past it and keep fighting. More directly though, we can conclude some from the exchange between Major Craig, the British commander and Governor Burke. Soon after Burke came into office, he and Craig were exchanging letters as they needed to, uh, which was common between British and uh, Patriot commanders. And Burke wanted him to address him as governor, and Major Craig wouldn't do it. He was, uh, because he's not, they don't see him as the governor. They see that as a provincial and kind of a wayward sideward of uh, Patriot government that's been set up. Instead, it should be the royal governor that should be addressed as the governor. And Burke won't open any of the letters that Major Craig extends and uh, Craig is forced to write to members in the Continental Congress representing North Carolina to get any kind of response or to reach out to things such as exchange of prisoners or any other matters that he needs to address directly to the Patriots. And so it seems like this conflict here where Governor Burke is very upset that he's not being addressed as governor, Major Craig is having to write around Burke to address things related to North Carolina. The governor, the, the executive won't, won't handle them. Without him addressing him as governor, that conflict seems to kind of breed some resentment between them, and it possibly might have initiated the reason for Fanning and Craig deciding, maybe on Major Craig's initiative, that they should capture Burke. That both, as kind of thinking European style, let's let's capture the capital and because of this uh, issue that's gone on between them, Let's, uh, let's go ahead and capture Burke. And that kind of will lead into the way he's treated as a prisoner, may give more evidence for that being the truth behind why they decide to go after Burke in this case.
0: How is Burke treated as a prisoner?
1: So one of the first things he does when he arrives in Wilmington is write a circular letter to the people of North Carolina recounting his treatment on the march, from Hillsborough to Wilmington. And he says that the march was really tough, effectively, that he had never been treated uh, in such a terrible way. And he really calls out David Vanning's treatment of him. It was a hard march. They were being pursued by the Patriots and General Butler. And uh, until they're stopped by some larger British forces and forced to turn back, uh, Burke is pushed really hard. So the first thing he does is write about that treatment. But connected to that, there's a debate between Burke and Craig, and is present in the different letters, whether Burke is a prisoner of war or a prisoner of state. And this is really important, particularly in an 18th century world where the officers, commanders, uh, legislative officials, executives, the prisoners of state are treated very differently than the prisoners of war. There is a kind of a gentlemanly nature. They're often exchanged for quickly. Because they need they're needed to command the forces, and so uh, Burke is immediately treated very poorly from that march. And then when he's in Wilmington, he is offered a lot of things. He says that he was cordially treated initially by Major Craig in Wilmington, the commander of the Wilming, the British forces in Wilmington. But then what results is every time he petitions for something, a change of location, food, clothing. Uh, something, uh, some kind of freedom for some period of time, it's denied. And he begins to take offense to this and really question whether or not he's a prisoner of war or a prisoner of state. He's insisting that he should be a prisoner of state. He's the governor of North Carolina. But like the letters revealed where Major Craig was not addressing him as governor, it appears that he begins to be uh, and is consistently treated as a prisoner of war, kind of the same way uh, soldiers would have been treated, with less of the elevated uh, honor and respect that would be due to a prisoner of state. And so Craig is showing kind of, he's kind of uh, snubbing his nose at Burke a bit, but then Burke also is taking great offense to this. He feels like he's being really set aside when he should be, though he is captured, at least honored in some better than an average soldier would be if they were a prisoner of war. He's taken to Wilmington and, and not treated well, but he really begins to get upset when he's removed to Sullivan's Island in South Carolina. And he's removed to South Carolina, and he's in a lot of danger. There's actually a couple of scenarios where uh, people are killed around him. There's a lot of conflict that's present in and around that area of South Carolina. And so this is when Burt gets vehement with those he's writing to, you've got to get me out of here, you've got to get me exchanged. He writes to Major Craig and he doesn't hear anything back. And so he begins to really insist and he ultimately starts to fear for his life and decides, OK, I either am going to have to take this into my own hands or I very well may be killed here or could just die of mistreatment. It's kind of in a passive way, the way he's been treated. And so Burke the whole time is insisting, I'm a prisoner of state. I'm a prisoner of state. But he's being treated constantly by the British as a prisoner of war repeatedly in the actions and the ways that they're responding to his
0: request. How did he become free and what happened to him next?
1: So sometime on January 17th of 1782. So first, first month of the year Burke uh, flees into the interior of South Carolina. Uh, We don't exactly know how he gets from where he is into the mainland and then, and then moves along and certainly South Carolina, much like North Carolina would have had uh, spotted groups of Loyalists and Patriots on both sides, despite the fact that the British have a good hold on a good portion of the coastline. So he had his request denied and he finally decides to take it in his, uh, in his hands. He had asked General Green, Nathaniel Green, the Patriot commander for support and Green had been working on some things and responding with other uh, Patriot British commanders. But Burke doesn't really hear anything definitive, and so he goes into the interior in South Carolina, and he works his way into the interior of South Carolina and then up into North Carolina, and he arrives at the town of Salem, which wasn't a large settlement. It was a notable town in the western portion of the state, but it's not large. It's a Moravian settlement, and he arrives there um, and possibly had had spoken with or, or touched with Green at some point to connect to let him know what was going on, And he immediately tries to call legislature from Salem when he arrives there. But he is just totally ignored. No one shows up for the legislature. No one is present. And so Burke then moves again into the interior, into – he goes back to Hillsborough in April. He again in April tries to call the legislature, and they eventually show up, but they show up in May. So there's kind of this distance between the executive and the general assembly. Whereas he's trying to call into session the General Assembly, they're kind of holding their distance with him. And he will eventually call into uh, session the General Assembly in May and resign from his position. And you'll remember that the chief executive was only a one year term, so it was unlikely, based on the circumstances, that Burke would have been elected again. Often it was a rotating, they would have elected somebody else anyway. But his treatment, both the commanders, such as Nathaniel Green, the legislature, were really bothered by his escaping, despite the fact that he was being treated poorly. If he really was a prisoner of state, then it would be honorable to wait for his exchange. There was some back dealings to try to get an exchange for him for British officers, but Burke refuses to wait and decides he needs to leave. And it's understandable, maybe if his life was in threat, but the the British command um, would have been possibly willing at some point to exchange him and the Patriots were working on it, but because he did flee, the general assembly and the North Carolina revolutionary leaders are very bothered by the actions that Burke has taken. And so he decides to resign his position as executive and they hold another election in the summer of 1782 to replace governor Burke. And then he, uh, unfortunately, very quickly, he, his, Health had degraded some, and he fell into some debt from being a prisoner and and then afterward. And so he passes away soon after in 1783, uh, just as the next chief executive governor has come into office. uh, Burke will die in 1783.
0: How do you feel this article helps us understand the Revolutionary Era better?
1: I think it does several things for us. And um, uh, maybe two or three, I would say. First, it's always taught, and I mentioned this at the beginning of, of our conversation, that in a survey course, whether it's a graduate course or an undergraduate course of the American Revolution, it's often taught that after Green and Cornwallis have conflict at Guilford Courthouse, after that, that battle, and Cornwallis goes to Wilmington and Green kind of moves. Um, in and around that area. And then they both, you know, Yorktown is later that year. That, that kind of ends the revolution. But I think it's really important. Burke is a great representation. And the capture and David Fanning and all that goes on there, that the conflict continues, uh, that Yorktown, though it's represented at the end of the war, is really still waiting on the peace treaty. And that the fighting continues until the war lasts after 1781 uh, into 1782 and 1783. It also demonstrates the revolutionary nature of the armies and the people. The governor, a large part of the assembly officers have been captured, but it doesn't stop General Butler from pursuing David Fanning. It doesn't slow down the revolutionary conflict in the state. It doesn't – they don't try to sign a separate peace treaty as a colony or do anything like that. They continue to fight, and it shows the very uh, ordinary – common, widespread revolutionary nature of the people of North Carolina, that they were as revolutionary maybe as you could say Massachusetts or the northern colonies. Uh, thirdly, it, it shows the Civil War nature. There, the militia commanders are uh, and raised-up continental commanders who are from the southern colonies are fighting uh, for and against the British and for and against the patriots, and so it represents that grimy Civil War nature that continues after the large armies have moved on into other areas. And I think finally, it shows the importance of North Carolina. North Carolina, you get Guilford courthouse and it will get some other things. But I think it shows that uh, the British really emphasize that on the coast, British commander is after the governor of North Carolina, that North Carolina's place in the colonies is really significant and important. Uh, so much so that they're willing to put men forward to try to get North Carolina to capitulate or to lower the morale of the state because it's playing a prominent role in the larger Revolutionary War.
0: Travis Copeland, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. The music played in this episode include works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia.